Greetings. This is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. I'm joined today on the podcast by one of the first guests that we ever had, Josh Barber. Josh joined us in the very beginning for one of our early episodes, a time when we were still working out all the kinks. Josh is a research analyst at Diamond Hill focused on REITs, title, and mortgage insurance, and is a wealth of sports knowledge and trivia. Josh has been with Diamond Hill since 2015, and prior to joining the firm, worked at Stiefel Nicholas and HGI Capital. He received both his bachelor's degree and master's degree in Talmudic law from Nair Israel Rabbinical College and his MBA from the University of Baltimore. Josh is joining me today to discuss a topic that has been in the headlines quite a bit recently, the surge in lumber prices and the impact on the housing market. We're getting closer and closer to return to the office, but for now, we're still recording these podcasts remotely. So I ask for your patience for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Josh Barber. Josh, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Glad that you're, you're back on once more. From a high level, I'd like to set the stage and then get your thoughts on the developments that we've seen in the lumber and housing industry. At your recommendation after reading an entertaining article in Barron's, Comparing the surge in lumber prices to things like Bitcoin and GameStop, uh, I pulled up the generic lumber futures contract on Bloomberg and saw that it had increased in price by 289% over the 12 months ended April 20th of 2021. Seems like the combination of lockdowns, fueling a lot of do-it-yourself projects, historically low interest rates, and stimulus checks has created this trifecta surge on demand for raw materials. So again, high level, what is going on in the lumber industry and how are companies handling the demand? Yeah, it's a great question. I think probably comparing it to Bitcoin or GameStop is pushing it just a little bit. Uh, it still is just a regular commodity from trees that we grow in abundance. But a lot of the factors that you mentioned there are the ones that are the biggest contributors to, to what we're seeing. So first of all, at this time last year was pretty much the lows of what we were seeing in equity markets and a lot of commodity markets. And there was really a huge uncertainty, especially in the home building world and especially the home building chain, if we're going to see massive unemployment and you know, reduction in wages, huge consumer uncertainty, how that would unfold in terms of home purchasing, home remodeling, any of that. As we now know, a lot of that turned out to be a huge boon for home building and home improvement. When people are home, they want to they have more time to do home improvement projects. When people are in apartments after a little while and, you know, they live, you know, the urban apartment boom has been going on for a really, really long time. But much of that attraction was, I want to be in the classic live, work, play or 24-7 type cities where you're not really home all that often. But even if you are, you can do something fun in your apartment building or down the block. With everything closed really in those big cities, all of those amenities and all those exciting things that had attracted people to those cities were gone. So you saw a lot of people that started moving out to the suburbs, maybe went to second homes, maybe went to live with their parents. And you had a lot of older millennials and even younger millennials who probably had put off home buying um, or home improvement projects for a really, really long time that looked at this and said, gosh, we're probably going to be in this sort of situation for a little while. Let's at least try to make it comfortable, fun. Maybe it's time for a life change. Maybe I can move somewhere else. Um, when you overlay that with the acceptance of remote work over the last year, where people can now say, oh, I don't have to be in downtown San Francisco to work in this job, I can move out to the suburbs, or I can move to a different state and city. 
you can see why a lot of that has been turbocharged, especially when you add in the fact that just home buying was massively delayed for the older millennial cohort for many, many years. So you're dealing with kind of a perfect storm of delayed demographic coming to home buying, along with a lot of people who suddenly had extra time, perhaps extra cash, and definitely extra incentive to do something to their home or buy a home. That's the, that, that's the demand side. Then you look at the supply side, and the U.S. lumber industry already was an industry that was, I don't want to say in decline, but it definitely was one that had reduced a lot of capacity since 2006 when the last housing bubble pretty much peaked. Now, we peaked then at almost two and a half million home starts. We've never really gotten above 1.2, 1.3 million in the 14 years since then. So, you know, when you already had so much capacity that was coming out of a industry that itself was not particularly great industry, it still is a commodity industry. It still is a commodity product. It's labor intensive. It's capital intensive. You, you had an industry that had struggled for a really long time with pricing, with availability, and with end use demand that suddenly had went from one extreme, right? In March and February, everybody said, let's dump everything that we have into the market right now because there's no need to have extra stock. There's no need to hire extra workers. There's no need to run any extra shifts. If anything, we should be cutting back. And then they did a 180 two or three months later to say, oh gosh, now we really see this demand is picking up, but we liquidated all our inventory. And now, you know, it's going to be harder to get our workers back. You had sort of the perfect storm on the demand side and the perfect storm on the supply side. You know, it's not Bitcoin. It's not GameStop, you know, a 300% rise. There's probably been a number of equities that have probably done that since the low in, in 2020. But for a commodity that doesn't have a ton of um, supply constraints, that actually is a really, really high number. According to the National Association of Home Builders, uh, the increase in lumber prices since the pandemic began has added more than 24,000 to the price of the average new single family home and nearly 9,000 to the price of a multifamily home. What are home builders doing to manage through the increase in demand at a time when raw materials are more costly and harder to find? I think there's a few options that they have. Um, first, they're obviously increasing pricing because they can, but you know, even some of their price increases haven't been able to, to, to keep pace. Even in the last few weeks, lumber has pretty much just gone from $1,000 per thousand board foot to somewhere in the vicinity of 1,200 at the end of last week, or just shy of that. So I think for a lot of them, they're almost, they're pausing community counts in some places. They're maxing out the number of homes that they will sell in any particular month. They're obviously passing along a lot of those price increases, but I think for them, they've been able to pass along a lot of those price increases that hasn't been a hindrance to their business. I, I think for them, they were initially probably, you know, let, let's say at the end of last year, going into fall, you saw home builders a little bit more cautious about that. You were going into a seasonally slower, slower time. And, you know, maybe they thought some of the hysteria around home building and, and home construction was going to come down. And the price of lumber actually did fall from the beginning of the fall almost until December. So, you know, there was some thought, hey, we might as well pause this. We don't have to pass that on. Maybe we could raise prices a little bit, but it's a win for the builders and a win for the consumers. And now that pricing has just gone crazy as we're starting peak home buying season, um, I think they have the confidence that they can actually be building more, increasing prices, um, passing a lot, uh, you know, a lot of those increases along to, to customers because the sticker shock just isn't there. The sticker shock that they were worried about in the fall is really not happening. You're seeing bidding wars in some places. You're seeing massive amounts of demand for for, for new homes, and I, I, I think for them, there's there, there's really the sense of you know all systems go. If raw pricing is going up and mortgage rates are going up. 
but things are still decently low in absolute terms or people or people have better savings rates and people are really motivated buyers. Um, there's really no reason for them to you know, hold up. I, I think they're probably going to be a little bit concerned about just the sustainability of that. So they'd rather keep some of that demand rather than saying, look, let's take all of this and build on spec and um, sell off as, as fast as we can. They'd rather say, let's layer in that demand a little bit more. So even if prices move a little bit, we still have a consistent source of demand, maybe for the next 12 plus months. But you know, there's a sense for them that the business is really, really good, which is something that it hasn't been for a really long time. And the thing is, even though rates have climbed a little bit more recently, so first quarter, really, we saw rates really take off and then stabilize in April uh, within a range, they're still at historic lows or, you know, relative to the, the historic average on the 10 year, I think is somewhere near 5%. So, you know, maybe that's offsetting, you know, some of that rise in, in raw material costs, and that's going to help out the home builders. I don't want to sound like a realtor on television or something, but you know, rates have never been this low, right? Like rates are still really low in absolute terms, but the truth is that rates were really low in absolute terms since pretty much 2011, but that didn't spur a whole lot of home buying. And you know, th there was still decent home building in the US in, in, in the late seventies and, and, and late eighties when, when mortgage rates were double digits. So I, I don't want to say that the, the low rates have nothing to do with it because I, I don't think that's true. But I think that the, you know, some of the aforementioned demand factors that we were talking about where you know, there'd been the move to urban, there'd been the move to apartment, there'd been the move to smaller living and the suburbs were really, really passe or, or almost a pejorative in, in some places. And you know, that, that's becoming a little bit more accepted as the millennials are more comfortable in their jobs, as they're more comfortable in their family situations or you know, looking to grow their families and, and those sort of things. You know, they make the move that we all did. Everybody grows up saying, I'm gonna stay in the city and I'm gonna party all the time and I'm gonna you know, ride my bike to work every day. And then you get into your late thirties and your back hurts and you, know, you, you, you don't mind driving to work a little bit and you know, the, the allure of avocado toast or you know, a, a street concert every night is just not what it was when you were in your mid twenties. Um, I'm not trying to poke fun. I just think, I, I think everybody goes through that you know, phase where, you know, you're, you're getting older, you, you have a family now, you know, you, 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 don't, you don't want an outdoor concert when you have a baby at home, you want people to be quiet outside. And, you know, then you're, then you start worried that you're becoming your parents at that point, but you are, because you're in your late 30s. And, you know, now it's time, you know, you want to go out and buy a house. It's not for everyone. But I think those demand factors are really much more of a factor that, you know, the, I mean, if mortgage rates were going to be 6% today, with that temper some enthusiasm, I definitely think so, because that's just that that is a material increase in, in, in the mortgage and overall payment. But, you know, if rates are going from two and a half to three and a quarter um, for somebody who really is a motivated buyer, I'd probably guess that the, the, the higher home prices are going to be much more of a hindrance to them than just, you know, mm -hmm. a modestly higher mortgage rate. Yeah, I saw something this weekend that said when we were teenagers, we snuck out of our houses to go to parties. And now that we're in our 30s and 40s, we sneak out of parties to go home. So <laughs> I thought that was interesting. So for those of us in the business long enough, we remember the housing boom prior to the great financial crisis and the damage that was wrought when the bill came due. How is this boom or potential boom different from what we've seen in the past, whether it was you know 08 or, or another period in time? We're building a lot fewer homes today than we were even at the start of that, um, you know, beginning. I mean, the, the U.S. normalized level was somewhere around a million and a half home starts, you know, new home starts, of which roughly 80 to 85 percent of those, this is, call it, um, prior to 2008, um, even taking in that, o, that 03 to 08 period. But, you know, the average was roughly 1, 1. 1.5 to 1. 1.6 million new home starts every year. 
and the vast majority of that was single family homes. Um, we've only averaged, you know, maybe a million or less over the, you know, since 2008. Um, and somewhere around the line of, you know, around 30 to 35% of those starts have been multifamily. You know, the timber and wooden products industry has been arguing pretty much since 2010, not very convincingly, that, well, we're massively underbuilding. We probably weren't massively underbuilding. We were just burning off for probably four to five years after 2008, the, the excesses of 2004, 2005, and 2006, which were, the, which were the previous peaks. But in the last five years, that's actually started to be true. And some of that was some, but some of the factors that we were discussing before, right? More of a coastal urban shift to markets where housing is very, very expensive, more of a preference with the younger generation for being in apartments or delaying home, home buying. Um, and now we're seeing that shift. And a lot of, you know, a lot of the industry just really wasn't prepared for that. But I think the good part of that is it probably creates a much longer tail for that boom. So, you know, to, to answer the question directly, we're, not, we're barely building one and a half million homes today. So thinking that we just get back to the trend line and staying there for a few years doesn't seem particularly excessive. Now, if we have a downturn in the economy, significantly higher mortgage rates, those sort of things, those are usually just the classic factors that you know, put a dampener on, 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 on home buying and home affordability. Rising home prices almost everywhere are becoming an issue right now. And for a lot of builders, you know, their, their ability to even just build entry level or their desire to build entry level um, has been really, really constrained by expensive land prices, um, the desire to be in certain cities where either you're building really in the exurbs of even you know, newer type Sunbelt cities, and you know, certainly within coastal markets where you know, the, 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 the affordability itself has been a challenge for many, many years. Um, but I think you're even seeing that in places like the Sunbelt, where call it in Orlando or Tampa, you could have built things within first or second ring suburbs 10 or 12 years ago, most of those land sites have been taken up. So for people who want to move there, you're either paying more to live in those first or second main suburbs than, than you would have been even on an inflation adjusted basis 15, 16 years ago, or you're having to move further and further out. And I think that that, that, that question becomes difficult for people, right? A, a half hour commute, maybe that's okay. An hour commute, I'm not sure how many people necessarily want to do that. So I, I, I think that's kind of going to be the next part of that, which is can we get more and more entry level where are they going to do that? How expensive is that even with somewhat higher lumber prices? So I think that's gonna be the next question. But do I think it's sustainable and could have a multi-year run? Absolutely it could. Um, we're not overbuilding by any stretch of the imagination today. And just being and staying at trendline or slightly above trendline for the next few years would probably just go a long way to reducing what's you know, the underbuilding that we have had over the previous five years. So my last question for you uh, is going to focus on something that we've talked a lot about on this podcast, and it's it's very prevalent in the industry, and that's ESG. And you know how is that impacting some of the lumber companies that are approached with, hey, don't cut down this number of trees, and I will write you a check, and that will be my carbon offset because I'm saving these trees. How much is that factoring into you know the business models of some of these companies? I don't think that's factoring a whole lot in today. It's one of the great ironies that um, a lot of the forest products companies and especially timber owners um, have become one of the more environmentally friendly um, companies today and ones that are really embraced by the ESG movement. And it's only ironic because you know, any old veteran of those, of those companies, not that I'm one of them, but you know, I, I think we can probably both remember a time when you know, people hated the forest products companies and especially environmentalists hated the forest products companies. If you talk to a Weyerhaeuser or others, they dealt with all sorts of protests and 
you know, murdering trees and those, you know, other um, far worse things that they were called, you know, over that period. But I think over time, the environmental movement has come to embrace, um, you know, the carbon sequestration of the trees. And I think to their credit also, the, the environmentalists pushed the forest, you know, products companies to have much more sustainable forestry. Um, you have really great forest products that are being done by the big forest products companies and even by the smaller family type or small business type owners of the timber. So they're all very cognizant of, you know, keeping, keeping the trees sustainable, you know, sustainable forestry and making sure to, you know, to, to, to replant, keep things non-timber income. I, I can't imagine that in, in a major log price um, inflationary environment that you're really going to be able to pay the log owners enough to hold off on that. You know, in the U.S. South today, you know, there was a Wall Street Journal article last week that was talking about that where, you know, for, for people today who aren't earning that much money off of their logs today, it's definitely alluring to say, sure, can I wait two more years to cut it down? Why not, right? I'm not getting paid for anything on it today except for maybe um, mineral income or, you know, hunting income, which is also, you know, a, a nice source of, um, you know, non-timber income. But you, you can't have a business where you're paid to not do anything. I think if anything, most of those businesses, you know, for, for those who have sold, they've sold to conservation um, elements or, you know, to other preservation tracts where you want to keep certain elements of the forest protected for the long term. And I think forest owners are really open to that. But areas that are supposed to be commercial woodlands, I, I think it is, you know, sustainable. It's good for the environment to keep having, you know, the trees regrown. Um, one thing that's really interesting, and I, I don't know that we've, you know, touched on it a ton, but you know, one of one of the factors that has continued to drive some of the demand has been Canadian lumber being um, being very difficult to source today, or, or 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 having significantly less wood fiber than it has. And one of those reasons for it, we you know we could have touched on it at, at, at the outset of, of that, was been a mountain pine beetle infestation in British Columbia that started around the early 2000s. But the, you know, when 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 you had trees that were infected with the mountain pine beetle you had to harvest them within a few years, otherwise you would lose it. In some cases, the lumber would get downgraded from a number two or better to a number three. So it's harder to do other things with that. But that took a huge amount of um, Canadian wood fiber out, um, you know, out of the market. And it will be out of the market for the next 70 years because you're in, you know, the, the Northern parts of Western Canada, it takes a really long time for those trees to grow. To the particular point about sustainability, one of the issues, and, and this is you know ironic, but what, one of the issues in Western Canada, and one of the reasons the, the, the mountain pine beetle was so devastating, was not only was it a, homo a homogeneity of species that was there, but you also had a homogeneity of age class of that species. So you had a, a predominant amount of pine that was that was older pine. Normally, if you have a mixture of species, it's harder for the beetle to jump from one area to another area and to continue affecting. But when you have huge tracts of nonstop older pine, it made it very, very um, easy for that pine beetle to spread. Um, but one of the reasons that you had such homogeneity in that forest in Canada was in the 1920s or 30s, I forget exactly when, there was a huge forest fire that wiped out a lot of that area. And so when the trees all regrew, they regrew in predominantly pine species and also similar age class. So that's one of the risks of actually not varying your species and age class. If, if you had more of a variety of species and age class that are consistently being cut down and replanted, it's actually more sustainable over the longer term. Now, I don't pretend to be an environmental scientist or you know, be able to tell you exactly what that difference is, but you know, there definitely is a benefit to having a more diverse forest um, in terms of you know, being able to avoid pests and other problems that have become very, very long-term issues. So, you know, in some places, the forest should definitely be maintained for the really, really long term. 
you know, in, in other places, it seems really healthy to have sustainably managed forests where you're clearing out undergrowth because you have far less forest fires like that. And when you have the age diversity and, and species diversity in some places, that seems to make a much more sustainable forest. Josh Barber, analyst at Diamond Hill. Thank you for, uh, for that education on, on tree diversification, which I had no idea. Thank you as always for joining me. I appreciate it. Hopefully it wasn't, uh, wasn't too painful and you'll be back on again. Always happy to join. Thanks for having me, Doug. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.